The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Okay, Paul. Here's Paul. Here's your favorite part. Here's here's your favorite part of the show, Paul. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Oh, nailed it. I'm Dr. Matthew Frank Watto, and we have a great show tonight. I'm here with my great friend, Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Paul, how are things? <laughs> I'm great, Matt. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. I'm very excited because we had a great discussion with. I'm saying great for everything. We had a fantastic <laughs> discussion with Dr. Iris Wang talking about constipation. You know her from our diarrhea episodes because we had so much diarrhea, it overflowed into a second episode, oh, no. Paul. That's no. right, I'm gonna make the joke twice on this episode. And uh, in a just a moment, we're gonna introduce you to our producer. But before we get to that, Paul, can you please tell the audience, uh, what is it that we do on the Curbsiders? Sure. Thanks for asking, Matt. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And as you mentioned, we have the phenomenal Dr. Elena Gibson with us. Elena, how are you doing? Great. Thanks for asking. <laughs> Excellent. Why don't I let you um, do the honors of telling us about our fantastic guest as well as a little bit about what we talked about tonight? Yeah, happy to. Today, we have a great conversation with our guest, Dr. Jing Iris Wang. She's a clinical gastroenterologist with a passion for teaching. She is a general gastroenterologist, but her clinical and research interests are in disorders of the gut-brain axis, or DGBA for short. There it is, Matt. Uh, she is currently an assistant professor at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. And during the week, she is also an amateur baker during the weekends. So we talked today about all the details of constipation and how to keep things going, uh, including the initial evaluation for secondary causes, what to check for during that time period, and then also an initial trial of laxatives, all the details on which enemas and laxatives to choose, and then pelvic floor dysfunction and what to do when you think that is the diagnosis. And I promised her that I would insert this here because Iris was very concerned that this one might never come out. All right, we'll just leave it. Nailed leave it. that there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pause for laughter. A reminder that this and most episodes will be available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Iris, so good to have you back. Maybe the audience didn't hear your first show on diarrhea, so they should definitely go back and listen to that. Yeah, two shows. You're right. That was two shows, actually. It was it was so packed. <laughs> it was overflowing. It was overflowing, Iris. <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> and uh, why don't you tell them a one-liner about yourself and, and, and remind them of a hobby or interest you have outside of medicine. Yeah. Thanks so much, guys, for having me back on the show. Um, I am an assistant professor of gastroenterology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, by day, I treat chronic abdominal pain and disorders of the gut-brain interaction, and that's what I do my research in as well. On nights and weekends, I am a toddler mom and an amateur baker. 
Such such a great one-liner. Paul, what did we name this uh, gut-brain axis disorder? <laughs> was it like f- functional GI disorders, like it or something? Or uh, uh, No. <laughs> <laughs> has a ring to it. <laughs> Might have to bleep that, Claire. <laughs> I'm not even sure how you got there. Uh, no, it's disorders of the gut-brain axis, right? So, But I think we're like Dabiga or something close to that, yes. Yeah, okay. It's not going to take off. I don't feel good about it. <laughs> you know where I was confused is because when I was reading, prepping for this one, it said functional GI disorders, FGID. So I, I thought that's what you were trying to make the acronym out of. And then I, made, and then it sounded like I was swearing when I tried to say it as one word. So sorry. Actually, yeah, sorry, Claire, audience. please make sure that you beat that out just so the listeners don't know what he said. And I think that will make the entire show better. <laughs> so actually, well, just to clarify, they did used to all be called functional GI disorders. But now in the interest of not calling them functional because it's gotten a bad rap and patients, you know, are being biased against, uh, we have renamed all of them disorders of the gut brain axis. I like that that better. That's very sophisticated. So speaking of sophisticated, (laughs) how about giving us a pick of the week? Can I give you two? Sure. I I had so much trouble deciding. Um, So one, in the interest of our constipation talk, I think encouraging physical activity is really, really important. And one of my favorite things uh, to do for physical activity is this YouTube channel called Fit Dance. I don't know if you guys have ever heard about this before, um, but they yeah, are sounds... kind of, um, they're like pro dancers who do these dance videos that are super choreographed, really well done to popular songs. They have uh, predominantly like Hispanic songs, which are just like honestly more fun to dance to um, but they're able sure. to be followed by a home dancer uh, and now they've like branched out to k-pop they've got bollywood songs so like whatever you want to do in a pandemic environment to keep up physical activity i would recommend checking them out that sounds fun paul i would pay money to watch you <laughs> <laughs> watch you dancing to that i was just thinking how shocked would you be if I was like, that was also my pick of the week, specifically the K-pop, but uh, I'll think of something else. Oh, that sounds great. I've been trying to learn how to salsa dance. There you go. Oh, actually, that, that, would be, that would be a good place to start because solo salsa is a little bit in that as well. I feel like maybe I should just leave it there. My second pick is not as good. Yeah, that's that was that was fantastic. All right, Elena, what what is your pick of the week? My pick of the week is a book called Lab Girl by Hope Jarin. It's really like an autobiography of her as a geobiologist and then also dives deep into different plants. So it's a mix of like personal stories and then stories about trees and how they function together. It's really interesting the way she mixes it. So just talking about it. like trees talking to each other through their roots and things yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or then I've heard like a little how... bit about that in like a TED talk or something. It's very, very cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it's her journey, like getting her PhD and making her, starting her own lab. It's really like an interesting mix of two sides of a story. So, all right. I like it. So, I'm going to quickly recommend a movie, which is King Richard. It's Will Smith's latest movie where he plays the father of Venus and Serena Williams. And it's definitely a, there's some parts that'll like make you cry. There's some parts that'll be very happy. It's just, it's just a good, it's just a good movie. It's very well done, very well acted. 
I don't know, Paul, is he, is there like Oscar buzz for that? I feel like this is like an Oscar play for Will Smith. I, I don't think there's Oscar buzz for it. I could no. be mistaken. I, I'm sure it was yeah. an Oscar grab on his part, but I don't think anyone's, anyone's taking the bait. But no I one's could, taking the bait. Okay. Yeah. I figured you would, I figured it would be in the no. Paul, what is your pick of the week? Well, you know, not, not to go on too much, but like I, I'm, you know, there was a lot of talk about how much I love the movie Cats before. And I, I just, I, I was thinking about how, for something to be art, it has to sort of leave you changed after you experienced it. So to that end, I'm going to, it's not a recommendation. I just, I want someone to talk to me about the movie Jungle Cruise. Every person that I bring <laughs> it up to says, oh yeah, it was pretty good. And like, it was, that movie was bananas. Like it's like within the first, ten, it's a children's movie. It costs $200 million to make. It's a, a movie <laughs> for children where someone gets murdered on screen. A bunch of people get murdered on screen. In the first five minutes, there is on-screen vomiting. There is a 10-minute musical montage that's a Metallica's Nothing Else Mattered about undead conquistadors. Like, the whole thing is the work <laughs> of a demented human being. And everyone who watched it comes out and is like, yeah, no, kids liked it. Like, I don't I don't understand it. It broke my brain to watch it. It was just two hours of, like, I, I, like I went into it not, sorry, this is taking too long. But, like, I love Raiders of the Lost Ark. I went into it wanting to be entertained. I'm like, this is right up my alley. Like, The Rock, he's charming. Only Bun's great. And instead, it was just this fever dream that lasted for forever. And yet no one else talks about it that way. But so I need I need more people to watch Jungle Cruise and someone who feels the way that I feel. Please, please reach out on Twitter or via email so I can just. I, I can Paul, the entire about. Wado family has seen it. Uh, my, yeah, all my like, kids, yeah, you right. could come over, come over this weekend and you could talk to the kids about it. It'll be I'd great. I'd love to, sure. Be like, yeah, there's a waterfall. <laughs> there's a cat. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> we can play some Smash Brothers and uh, talk about talk about Jungle Cruise. I could spend the next two hours talking about Jesse Plemons' performance alone. Like I just, I cannot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's Paul Giamatti. He's just there for like 10 minutes. Then he's gone. And it's just, it's, it's an incredible movie. I can't stop thinking about it. Paul, are we going to start a movie podcast at some point? And I'll just, I'll just uh, kind of throw you probing <laughs> questions. You yeah, could just sure. let you, <laughs> we'll just wind you up Sorry. and let you go. Claire, uh, cut all talk. that out. It was fine. I... <laughs> <laughs> Loved it. <laughs> This episode of The Curbsiders is sponsored by the American College of Physicians Internal Medicine Meeting 2022. And get excited, audience, because I know I'm excited. Me and Paul and the team, we're going to be there in person in Chicago this April 28th to 30th, 2022. It'll be so good to be back every year at the American College of Physicians. It's actually hard for us to choose which sessions we're going to go to, and we are overloaded with clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I mean, this meeting was made for the curbsiders. We'll be there mixing it up with the audience, recording in person, and just soaking up all the fantastic knowledge food that the ACP is putting out there. And they have two high-value registration options to choose from. There's the standard in-person registration, or you can get premium access, which lets you have access to the recordings after the meeting. Because as I told you, there's so much content you might not get through it all in person. Get an early bird discount when you register before January 31st at annualmeeting.acponline.org and use the code IM22CURB. That's annualmeeting.acponline.org and use the code IM22CURB. Our podcast today is sponsored by Masterworks. I've talked about Masterworks before, and this product is super cool. Now, just like in medicine, where prevention is often better than the cure, when you're investing 
You want a well-diversified portfolio so you can weather the ups and downs of a volatile market. And one surprising way to diversify your portfolio is by investing in blue-chip art. Did you know that artwork has little correlation to the S&P 500? That means when markets are reacting to this pandemic, which is still happening even though we're in 2022 now, that art prices can help your portfolio hedge market volatility. That's why the Wall Street Journal recently called the art market, quote, one of the hottest on earth. And with Masterworks, investing in blue chip artwork has never been easier. Masterworks is a billion dollar fintech startup that's financial technology, and it allows everyone to invest in iconic paintings from artists like Picasso and Monet at an entry point that's affordable for you. The most exciting part is that Masterworks is giving our listeners priority access to their newest offerings. Just head to masterworks.art slash curbsiders to get started. That's masterworks.art slash curbsiders. See important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Well, I think we have huge topic to get to. And who better to start us off than Dr. Elena Gibson? Elena, do you want to read us the the case to start us off here? Yeah, I can do that. So first case, we have Miss Constance Strain. She's a 40-year-old female. She's got a past medical history of hypertension, and she's coming to clinic with acute worsening of her chronic constipation. Uh, So she's just been feeling really bloated and hasn't been having a bowel movement frequently. And so how do you define constipation and... Now, what would be the next things to think about in Miss Constance? So I will ask you to indulge me in going back a little bit to the pathophysiology of how we poo, right? So I think it's really, really important to do this, mostly because if you don't understand how it's supposed to work, right, then you don't understand how it can be broken, and then you don't understand how to fix it, right? So so we got to at least have some sort of conceptual framework for what our body does in order to produce this bowel movement. I've kind of tried to outline it in, in a ready, set, go type of breakdown. So first, you have to get ready. This is called the pre-defecatory phase of bowel movements. And actually, it happens long before you have your actual stool. This is something that your body does in order to um, start what are called these high amplitude propagated contractions in your colon that actually move the stool ball along. And it can be triggered by a number of things. So waking up can do it. And eating can do it. 150 milligrams of coffee or caffeine can do that. Eating-wise, you have to eat about 500 kilocalories to reliably trigger what's called the gastrocolic reflex. It, it goes by a couple other names as well. But basically, triggering this reflex allows the um, colon to basically say, oh, there's something coming from above. We have to clear on out. So that's the getting ready portion. The getting set portion is when the stool actually reaches your rectum. So the stool ball now hits these receptors that sit in the rectum at the upper anal canal. And that tells your body, okay, there's stool here. And now I have two choices. I can either go to the bathroom and let this out, or I can say to my body, this is not the time. And I can resist the stool. So first of all, to back up a little bit, once that stool ball hits, there's actually an automatic reflex that stops the stool ball from just like coming out, right? This is get set. This is not go time. Thank goodness. (laughs) Um, and, And you know, when that that process is lost, there's a lot of problems that happen. Um, See prior episode. But (laughs) 
when, <laughs> when you do resist that urge, you actually send that stool ball back up your rectum. And then you send a signal up your colon that actually increases your colon transit time and delays movement. Okay, so that's really important to know because a lot of little kids do this um, and end up with kind of bad constipation because of it. All right, and lastly, the moment of go, right? And most people uh, who are probably not interested in this podcast because they can poo, um, <laughs> they do this effortlessly, right? The stool just comes out. But really, it's like this wonderfully coordinated process where you have to generate rectal pressure by contracting your diaphragm and your abdominal muscles, and your pelvic floor has to simultaneously relax. So that change in pressure allows you to expel these rectal contents with little coordination from any waves, little voluntary effort. It should just come out. And so when patients tell you that they're straining, it's actually abnormal, right? So your stool shouldn't have to be, there shouldn't have to be straining to produce a bowel movement. Iris, can I, can I just make a comment about the, the uh, gastrocolic reflex I always think of this when patients or maybe family members or friends are like, oh, as the minute mm -hmm. I eat that, like it goes right through me. I'm like, yeah, it, it, you can't, it's not like you eat it yeah. and five minutes later, it's at your rectum. Like that's food from another meal. Like that's the gastrocolic reflex. And they're like, what the hell are you talking about? But uh, that's, that's how I think about it anyway. So is that, that's what's happening when people are like, I eat this, it goes yeah, right absolutely. through absolutely. And that's why people are like, oh, I have my morning coffee. I go to the bathroom. I'm like clockwork, right? And actually, we'll come back to this like morning coffee idea later when we talk about how best to use your stimulant laxatives. The other thing to note about the gastrocolic reflex is sometimes when patients tell you that they have postprandial pain. We often think that, you know, pain right after you eat, oh, that's probably upper GI. It can actually be related to constipation because of that gastrocolic reflex, because they could be actually inducing colon contractions. And so something to keep in mind in your um, abdominal pain workup. So how do we know if this misconstant strain, great name, by the way, Elena, very understated. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> um, I like it. How, how would we define, like she says she's constipated, but what, what would meet the actual definition Absolutely. of that? Absolutely. So constipation is actually kind of relative, you know, to a person's perception of what their baseline is. So you can talk about stools becoming more hard, difficulty with defecation, or a sense of incomplete evacuation. Of course, because we are, you know, physicians and we have to study things, we have to put labels and diagnostic criteria on things. So we can formally diagnose constipation as three or fewer bowel movements per week. But the problem is this, this frequency doesn't often correlate with people complaining about constipation. Because if your baseline is three times a week, you don't feel constipated. You're, it's not a problem for you. So, so sometimes it's at least a little bit relative. But we do define chronic constipation as this happening for at least three consecutive months. And when you're asking someone, you kind of mentioned some of the questions you would ask, how do you go through their bowel movement history or asking them more about the constipation? I, I go through a very kind of algorithmic approach in my mind. This is almost like my bowel habit review of systems. And as I'm asking them questions, there's other things that I'm kind of thinking about that I'm going to ask them about later. So I always start off with frequency of stools. And I'll start off with what was your baseline? You know, what was normal for you? And then what is it now? How many times a week or a day or, or what have you? And then second, after that, I ask about the Bristol stool form. And again, what is the change? So the Bristol stool scale is a one to seven scale to allow you to kind of have a visual gradation of what the consistency or softness of the bowel movement looks like. And 
by definition, a hard stool is going to be a Bristol 1 to 2. But if patients are used to having a Bristol 6 and they're now a Bristol 3, sometimes they'll complain about constipation. And then very specific questions I ask them are, do you strain when you have a bowel movement? Do you have incomplete evacuation? So a sense that I just went to the bathroom, but there is still more. And that's going to be a little different than urgency or tenesmus, right? So these people are feeling like there's still stool stuck in there or just feeling like they're not empty. And sometimes it's a little bit hard to tell from tenesmus. And then I ask them, do you need to shift positions on the toilet? You know, are you doing toilet yoga in order to produce a bowel movement? And then I tell them I'm a gastroenterologist, so I get really, you know, um, detailed about this. And then I ask them, do you ever use a finger to help the stool come out? Those three last, those last couple of questions, so from straining, incomplete evacuation, positional changes, need for digital disimpaction, if all of those are positive or if a couple of them are positive, I'm thinking... I need to do, well, I always do a really thorough rectal exam unless they have like GERD, but I really need to do a rectal exam to look for rectal evacuation disorder because those four questions are what signal me that there's something wrong with the muscles of their pelvic floor that's not allowing a stool to come out. The last kind of symptom-based question that I'll ask is is in women or or, um, female gender patients, do you ever have to put or do you ever feel like you need to splint the back wall of the vagina? So what they'll do is put a finger into the vaginal canal and push on the back in order to help a bowel movement come out. That very specific question makes me concerned about pelvic organ prolapse and specifically a rectocele because that bulges into the vaginal canal and they splint in order to help that stool ball to evacuate. So that will trigger specific workup if they're answering those questions positively. I ask them about the timeline, what has progressed, what happened around the time their bowel movements changed, other symptoms like bowel discomfort, nausea, vomiting, all of that kind of supports a story of kind of too much stool in the colon. And then we always want to ask about our warning signs, weight loss, is there change in the stool caliber, right? We've heard, we, we always kind of think about pencil thin stools as a marker of, is there some sort of obstructive lesion? Is there severe pain, rectal bleeding, a family history of colon cancer that would prompt me to do um, very quick kind of further workup? Um, just going along other things, you know, medication changes is really, really important for. I think Paul oh, had sorry. a question here. It, no, it's not a very good one, but it's I just to, to keep it as basic as we possibly get because this comes up a lot. Is I have patients who I, I get the sense that they feel they should be moving their bowels a certain number of times per week, so they have this perception of what normal is, and it's not even related to discomfort. And I was just wondering if maybe you could share your scoop with us because I feel I'm not maybe this Matt. I'm not sure if you get this question a lot, but like how often should I be going? Or yeah, and I it's I for me I'm always like was well, as often as you need to as long as you are not miserable. But I, that it, feels like a not satisfying answer. So I wonder if you would mind right. sort of sharing. It's how akin you that to patients, patients like. How much water do I need to drink? What color should my urine yeah. be? Like there are patients I feel like who think they have to go every single day because that's what their parents did and that's what people told them. And when they don't, they're <laughs> alarmed. And that's not necessarily anything to be concerned about. So I'm, I'm just, it comes up so often. I feel like you must have a good script for it. So I, w- I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing it's that It's actually a really difficult question because um, those patients don't tend to come to GI, right? Where they just kind of feel like there's something wrong. They'll bring it up to their PCP. The kind of guidance that I give my constipated patients, I guess this might be a better way to answer the question. Um, what I tell them to aim for is not necessarily a stool a day. It's improvement of what they have. So if they have a school, stool every five days, I tell them, okay, we are aiming for a bowel movement every two days or every three days. They need to be, and I care more that the bowel movement is soft 
and that they are passing it without straining. So those two qualities are probably more important than frequency and that they don't have symptoms. I, I got there. So what we talked about so far with the history, it sounds like one big area that you focus on is patients who are straining, who have, they say they have incomplete evacuation, that they're kind of doing the yoga, toilet yoga, like you said, the pos- different positions, or that they're using digital disimpaction or splinting, vaginal splinting. Those patients, you think of like either rectocele, you said, or like a, a pelvic floor muscle I- issue. Um, and then you gave us the red flag signs, which I think people are more probably used to, like the severe pain, weight loss, um, bleeding. So what what else would you ask about the history? Like I kind of recapped what we've talked about so far. Um, what else What else is important to ask about or think about as you're taking that history? Yeah, so medication changes is always a big one. You know, in any new symptom, what have they been taking? Especially, have they been recently put on an iron supplement, which patients don't often think about to tell you? What herbal supplements are they using? And then any narcotic medications is going to be a big deal. Medica- uh, medical history-wise, there's several kind of systemic diseases that are frequently associated with Secondary const- or, or with secondary constipation. So things like hypothyroidism, poorly controlled diabetes. Parkinson's is a big one because um, the constipation can actually precede the neurologic symptoms. And so in a patient who maybe has some family history, you know, who all of a sudden develops constipation, you may want to look out for that. Electrolyte imbalances like hypercalcemia is going to be a problem. A lot of your muscular dystrophies, your spinal cord issues, right? Because there's problems with innervation, uh, they're going to be some of the most difficult constipation patients that you'll treat. Systemic sclerosis, and then for those who are um, in endemic areas, Chagas disease is actually uh, one of the only um, infectious etiologies of constipation. The other things to know are, is there a history of cancer? What have they had to treat their cancer? Is there radiation involved that may be changing how their uh, bowels. For me, usually that's pretty clear in their medical history because I'm getting them as a referral. And what I specifically ask about um, that usually isn't as apparent is their obstetric history. Um, In my women with constipation, I ask if they've had children, particularly if they have vaginal deliveries, complicated deliveries. And that means were there vacuums or forceps used to help deliver the child and did they suffer any high degree tears? If they did, often they have pelvic floor dysfunction. Can you tell by now that I love pelvic floor dysfunction and that this is like one of my favorite diagnoses? (laughs) I'm excited to learn about it. That was one of the big topics that I wanted to learn more about uh, from you. So I'm I'm glad that you're you're primed to talk about it. I'm going to round out the history a little bit. Social history is really important to take here, right? Um, and, And this is the difficult history. Do they have history of trauma? Um, especially even sexual or physical trauma, because in our patients with pelvic floor dysfunction, um, like 22% of them had a history of sexual abuse and 32% physical abuse. Do they practice anal intercourse? Because then there might be some risk to damage of the muscles of the pelvic floor. And then it's important to know how their bowel functions are impacting their social life. But that's kind of a different discussion. Psych history-wise, it's often... um, it's important to take the psych history, not necessarily because you want them to be diagnosed with like a somatic somaticization or a um, kind of disorder of the gut-brain interaction, but constipation is a somatic manifestation of a lot of affective disorders. So 
almost close to 30% of uh, depressed patients are going to have constipation. And then schizophrenic patients in particular have a lot of issues with constipation and megacolon. Not really sure why. And then the eating disorder patients, because they're not eating enough to stimulate that ready phase of your bowel movement, um, they're going to perhaps have some issues actually producing a bowel movement. And that might lead to bloating, to discomfort, to further worsening of their body image issues. And then could potentially lead to laxative abuse as well. So important to kind of understand where your patient's coming from with their symptom. So Ms. Strain, she is still in the office. She said she's having these bowel movements every three to four days. She is having incomplete evacuation and she is straining for the last month. Prior to this, she usually had one bowel movement about every two days. And then she does have a chronic history of abdominal pain that improves following a bowel movement. So going back to our questions, how would you fit mist strain into a category for constipation and what diagnostic testing would be next? So constipation, especially chronic constipation, we usually think about in three different categories. So there's normal transit constipation, slow transit constipation, and then defecatory disorders, which we count as the rectal evacuation disorders that we've talked so much about already. Um, With normal transit constipation, you can also be then subdivided into IBS-C or constipation subtype, or functional constipation. We can talk a little bit about the difference later. Um, with slow transit constipation, you're actually looking at kind of the delay, right, in, in the amount that your colon moves. And that can have either because of the diminish of a gastrocolic reflex or shortening of that get ready, that pre-defecatory period. Um, but it could also be a neuronal or a muscular tissue. That accounts for about 13% of our constipation patients. The defecatory disorders count for about 25%, and then the normal transits account for the rest. So your normal transits are going to be the large bulk of what we see in GI clinic. And IBSC or chronic or chronic constipation from, I guess what did you, what did we term that? The other functional, just chronic constipation. Functional, okay, functional constipation. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> functional constipation. Would those both fall into normal yeah. transit, or can they be? In- They're both okay. uh, considered normal transit constipation. And the difference that I really, you know, the um, Rome four criteria have very um, kind of defining characteristics for both. But the functional constipation is really one of them is insufficient criteria for IBS. So if you meet criteria for IBS, then you don't have functional constipation. Um, and then functional constipation talks about kind of uh, change in stools, straining, lumpy stools, incomplete evacuation, sensation of blockage, or using manual maneuvers. Um, really, in my mind, the big difference is, is there pain or is there no pain uh, with your constipation issue to differentiate those two? Iris, I, just just thinking about these, um, I don't know, I hesitate to say buckets of constipation, but uh, there we go. <laughs> the So these... You mentioned there's there's the normal transit, the slow transit, people with defecatory defecatory disorders, and then there's like other secondary causes where we can like point to a medication or another disease, some process that is causing um, the constipation. But uh, with normal transit, can you get that just from the? Can you say someone has a normal transit constipation just from the history, or does it really require some of this more advanced testing in, in order to put them in that? Bucket again. Sorry for saying bucket. Talking about poo. I feel like there are worse containers you could have used, but that's okay. Blocks, <laughs> uh, you know. So <laughs> I think it's it's a good question. So I'm I'm gonna separate out 
your question a little bit. So the, the short answer is no, I can't tell what bucket they're in without the testing. However, that doesn't mean I can't treat them without knowing what bucket they're in. So if we look at the algorithms and the guidelines, the first step after you rule out secondary constipation is actually a trial of treatment. So making sure their fiber intake is up and then giving them some sort of laxative therapy, even up to a prescription laxative like lubiprostone, like linaclotide, planacotide, etc. Um, and so it's reasonable to treat their constipation. It's only if that constipation treatment has an inadequate response that then it becomes important to say, okay, let's phenotype them. That's the better word for bucket. <laughs> and then, yeah, there you go. That's, and that's also what we're in, in primary care. I mean, that's what we're doing. And, and part of that is just uh, the practicality of it where we're saying, you know, we're, and we're going to talk about it, but where, you know, their activity, what they're eating, uh, and then just trying some basic medications before we refer them to you because there's there's just not enough of you out there, Iris. I mean, there's a lot of yeah. GI doctors, but not with your expertise in uh, disorders of the it's gut really brain my axis. Passion Paul. for bowel movements. I my goal in life is actually to write a children's book called How to Poo. I think that is oh, very achievable for you. I think it's I I please send it my way once it's written. I would love to read it. Yeah, well, I was really thinking like maybe we could do something better, like reading some about how people have fear yeah. of using public bathrooms and then it creates like a chronic problem holding in stool. Right? It's like maybe we should do like a public health campaign. Like, there you go. It's okay. I tell my patients all the time, nobody teaches them how to poo and it's not their fault that they have a pelvic floor dysfunction. They didn't know they weren't supposed to be straining. <laughs> Yeah, that's how I feel about flossing too. But anyways, <laughs> <laughs> no one taught me. <laughs> let's so let's let's talk about the diagnostics a little bit because we're gonna we're gonna get into the treatment. But when when they let's say a person has seen their primary care, uh, Iris, this this uh, Miss Constance here, she's seen her primary care. They made sure she's, you know, having reasonable fruit and vegetable fluid. She's a little bit active. She's tried some basic stuff. She's coming to you for a first office visit. You've done your hook <laughs> rectal exam that you told us about where you're checking for, you know, her pelvic floor dysfunction or your, what, what other testing might you send her for at this point? Or what do we, what else do you have to do to say this is IBSC? So first I always I, I always try to make a diagnosis of pelvic floor dysfunction, okay? Because one, it's like the first, if you look at the- <laughs> Just so you can high five all your office staff. And <laughs> I'm telling you, it's it, patients appreciate it. I can teach them how to poo. It's fixable. It's great. Um, but also, if you look at the algorithms in the guidelines, right? My, my colleagues down the hall wrote these algorithms, so I'm very, you know- proud of promoting them. Um, but the, the next line, if there is an inadequate response to a therapeutic trial of laxatives, is an anal rectal manometry. It is ruling out pelvic floor dysfunction. And the reason um, that is, is constipation is root of all evil and pelvic floor dysfunction is the root of all constipation. And I tell my <laughs> patients that I'm a very simple person because that, and that's why I'm a GI doctor, because our system is just one giant tube and if you are plugged at the end, nothing is going anywhere. So you always have to check the end. And this is borne out in evidence because if you have a pelvic floor dysfunction, like we talked about with that kind of stool ball going up, if you're resisting the bowel movement, you can actually slow down your colon transit. So if you're not able to evacuate mm -hmm. that stool and there's a lot of rectal distension, your body will send uh, signals up the chain to 
slow down colon transit, slow down small bowel transit, and you can actually cause gastroparesis from very severe constipation. And so doing colonic transit testing to look for slow transit constipation is not valuable unless you have actually ruled out the pelvic floor dysfunction because they could cause both. So first step is to rule out pelvic floor dysfunction with an anal rectal manometry and a balloon expulsion test. If that's positive, wonderful, defecatory disorder, we go down for a treatment of that. If that's inconclusive, and what that means is, you know, on my rectal exam, they're having clear evidence of some sort of paradoxical movement, um, but the anal rectal manometry is borderline, which, you know, because my, my rectal exam is so awesome, doesn't happen. Just kidding. Totally happens <laughs> all the time. Um, but less and less. But really, it's a discordance between the findings on the anal rectal manometry and what their muscles are doing and the balloon expulsion test, which is we put a balloon in the rectum, fill it with 50 cc's of water, and then ask patients to evacuate it. And if they cannot evacuate it within a certain period of time, that's a rectal evacuation disorder. But if they have that and all the muscles are working well, then you have to do further workup to see what is stopping that balloon from coming out. And that's when we go to defecography, imaging studies of what they're actually doing when they try to evacuate rectal content um, to see if there is some sort of pelvic organ prolapse or obstructive issue of the evacuation outlet or the rectal outlet. I was just going to ask, is the anorectal manometry, is that like a tube that's up in the rectum that, and you just measure, it measures kind of the same way. There's, I know there's manometry for esophageal manometry. Is it, it's just a yep, similar exactly. process? It's a, it's a probe with a number of sensors that go up into the rectum. And so you can re- measure rectal pressure, anal pressure, and then um, the gradient as you're trying to squeeze. And then as you're trying to evacuate. And that's in the office. They're not like walking Correct. around with that thing yeah. for 24 hours. I describe like, it. You sometimes you see people yeah. with like the esophageal. Well, yeah. I guess those are pH, well, pH monitors, impedance, right? and, but... and all sorts of other stuff. Different topic, um, okay. another another time. Um, but I was just wondering what I'm sending my patient for. I'm gonna be like, yeah, they'll put this tube in. It'll be in there for a couple of days. You'll walk around. <laughs> um, but I usually okay. tell them it's exactly what I just did with my rectal exam, except now we'll be able to generate the pressures and get a, an accurate reading. Um, there's two other components to a full anal rectal manometry. So uh, one is kind of those maneuvers we just talked about with the rectal exam. Uh, Two is that balloon evacuation test. And then three, sometimes um, not all centers do this, but it's a balloon uh, rectal sensitivity test where we're inflating a balloon and we're checking at what volume of balloon do patients feel the balloon, feel an urge to defecate, and feel discomfort. And that can tell me whether there's hyposensitivity of the rectum. There's there's a little bit of reflex nuance in there, but we won't uh, get into that too much. So if all of that's negative we go down the normal, uh, we go down to colonic transit testing. And then the way we do it, which a a lot of centers do it this way as well, is with uh, radioactive um, indium, either indium or technetium, and then they swallow this pill. And then we look at where that tracer goes at um, at zero, four hours, 24 hours, and 48 hours. And then that actually helps um, in the same way the SITS marker does, because you can tell where things get stuck. Whereas with a motility capsule, you can't quite tell where the capsule gets stuck if it slows. All and- right, I w- I want to try to summarize this real quick. So the the we've we've done our the first step is like sort of empiric treatment, 
if that doesn't work, they're going for manometry and expulsion, balloon expulsion. And that's like to say whether or not they have like pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, and then if, if that's inconclusive, you do the imaging study of def defecography where you can kind of really see what's happening as they're trying to expel things. If, if that is normal, then you would then they, only then would they get this, these colonic transit studies where you're seeing if they have Correct. slow transit. Yep. And if, okay. if I that's think I normal, then we treat as IBS. And we go at, down that then like functional constipation. Unless they have absolutely no pain, then they, you treat as con, like functional constipation. And I, I think I read in your notes that maybe like at a at a minimum, you just want to make sure there's no like hypothyroidism. We're pretty good at testing for that as internists. Any other just like basic lab tests that or, or other tests that we would get as like before we send them to you? I think electrolytes, you know, always you want to make sure their sugars are controlled. Um, but again, I think you, you have that very well covered. Yeah. Um, their calcium is not like 16 or something. Right. Um, they don't have like a huge goiter. They don't have a big family history of colorectal cancer. They're not like sure. having a resting tremor and there's undiagnosed Parkinson's disease. Really, I think it, the only other thing that I can think of is making sure that they have had their age appropriate screening. So for mm. kind of chronic constipation, there's really no indication for colonoscopy. We don't usually find anything beyond kind of age-appropriate um, colorectal cancer risk, unless there are those kind of um, uh, the red flags that we talked about before, right? Sudden change, pencils and stools, bleeding, et cetera. Otherwise, yeah. if they're like 51 and they haven't had their colonoscopy, it's, it's appropriate to send them for colonoscopy, but not to work up the constipation necessarily. This episode is sponsored by Squarespace. Audience, we're so excited to tell you about our sponsor today, Squarespace. I'm sure you've heard of them, and I'm also sure that you have an idea that you've been thinking of starting your own website or blog, and now is the time. Maybe you even want to start your own podcast. You've been listening to Curbsiders be like, those guys don't know what they're doing, especially Paul, and I think I could do better, so I'm going to start a podcast. I'm going to start a website. And Squarespace is the perfect place to do that. Actually, I love Paul. And let's be honest, he is a national treasure. So it's going to be hard to top him. But you could still try. You'll find your own voice. And that's what Squarespace is going to help you do. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that's going to help you make a website, an online store. They have marketing tools. They have analytics. They really have everything that you need to grow your brand, to build your presence online. I love that Squarespace lets you send your own Squarespace email campaigns. Plus, Squarespace makes it really easy with social sharing buttons. You can share your blog posts right there on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, Reddit, wherever. I don't know where you're all hanging out now. I don't do much on social media. So what are you waiting for? Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com curb to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash curb to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. I think we should talk some treatment, Elena. Do you want to bring us to the last part of the case? Yeah. yeah. So um, Constance uses some over-the-counter fiber supplements uh, and she has used some stool softeners. She wasn't sure exactly of the name when her symptoms worsened in the past. Uh, she also did take some PEG in the past. And she's been working on her diet and exercise. She's just really frustrated because 
none of this has resolved her symptoms. So how do you approach treatment and this laxative trial that is part of really the workup and treatment? Yeah. So in, in if we go back to kind of the guidelines and the algorithms, fiber is going to be our backbone of treatment. But it doesn't actually bear out in data. And so we've there's been these kind of large trials of like, does fiber actually improve bowel movements? And it's, it's very unclear um, how much fiber will actually do because fiber will increase the bulk of your stool. I was reading one gram of fiber makes 2.7 grams of stool, which I thought was really cool. So I had to share. Um, that is really cool. <laughs> fruitful. There you go. <laughs> Be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> <laughs> um, so with the fiber, what you're recommending is really over 25 grams a day for women, over 30 grams a day for men. If you just kind of average it out to about 30 grams for everyone, that's reasonable. I, I would caution though that the guidelines actually recommend soluble over insoluble fiber. And that's important to know because insoluble fiber can generate a lot more symptoms. And even soluble fiber may be difficult for patients who truly have kind of obstructive type constipation, right? Either slow transit or that rectal evacuation problem, because that fiber will sit there and it will get fermented and will create a lot of gas. And so what to know about fiber is one, if you're starting your patients who are on like a, a standard American low fiber diet, you have to start them slowly. Otherwise, they will not tolerate it and then they will hate you. Uh, <laughs> two, use the soluble fiber. And three, if their symptoms are bad and not getting better, it's okay to just like throw it out the window and it's not going to work. So for soluble fiber, tell me if I'm missing anything. This is like, this is psyllium. This is oat bran, uh, barley, and beans that for the, for the audience who's not, you know, hasn't been reading about fiber uh, recently. But because then insoluble fibers, the problem with those is that they can get like fermented. And then once they get fermented, they're no longer like bringing water into the stool and there's gas formation and things like that. Is that, is that like, I don't know how much we need to get into it here, but do you have specific types of fiber you tell your patients to eat or do you have like a list that you give them? So I often don't recommend fiber supplement because one, it's so confusing for patients. And two, you know, like, are they getting methylcellulose? Are they getting psyllium? Are they buying the right type of fiber supplement, et cetera, right? Um, and and, and I, I find that if I'm going to recommend them take a powder, it's going to be like um, polyethylene glycol um, because that's going to be more effective. So what I usually counsel my patients is to increase their dietary fiber and so, so like the things you're saying, beans, et cetera, but you know that beans, um, these foods that you're mentioning do generate a lot of gas and our patients often, if, especially if they have IBS, they, they cannot tolerate that gas. And so what I really like is this new study that came out recently looking at food sources of fiber that are as good as fiber supplementation. And that's going to be two kiwi fruit a day or four prunes a day is actually equivalent in efficacy to high dose fiber supplementation. Now, and so much more delicious. And I was remind us, is that skin on, skin <laughs> yeah, off with the kiwis? Caveat is that it is kiwi with the skin on, that which I find fair. unacceptable. <laughs> yes, correct. You're, no, wait, you're, you're Iris, correct. I don't know. We need to double check this because when I look, I specifically look this up in the supplement and I'm pretty sure they were not, they did not have the skin on. But because Paul oh. was calling somebody on Twitter a lunatic for eating the skin of a kiwi fruit. Yeah, with photographic evidence, by the way, which doesn't make you less of a crazy person. No, if anything, no. that's just committing to the bit. One of my fellows said that 
No, I'm fairly certain I looked this up in the, in the supplement for that study because this was a big thing between Paul and I, and it's skin <laughs> without the skin, which I was surprised. I thought you probably would need to eat the skin for it to work, but I, I don't I'm, think I'm so. I'm so sorry to have, have to... taken us down this. I, no, I I'm going to have to go back to the study because this has been like a point of discussion, right? Like, is like how tolerable is kiwi with the skin on? I, I personally think it's intolerable. Should we pause the podcast and, uh, and figure it out? <laughs> oh, no, we should look it up in real time. Yeah, yeah, I think let's this see. is. Yeah, who's looking it up? <laughs> Reporting back, BT Dubs. Patients in the kiwi fruit group were instructed to consume two whole peeled kiwi fruits peeled per day. Kiwi so fruits. peeled is part of the protocol. Stand yeah, that sounds good. I thought I, I, it's not as funny. I, mean, I wish I, it's better. I, I wish. I, I think I'm going to just tell people just uh, to eat the skin anyway, just because. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're a sadist. I, I did just, just look it up too, and dates have quite a bit of fiber yes. in them. Dates, I guess similar pears, to prunes, but yeah. Um, pears and mangoes as well have been such studied a more, in like other other um, regions. It's such a more yeah. delicious way to get your get you know get the same result than than taking um, if you've ever tried psyllium fibrant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think this is a much this is I I'd go for two kiwis or a couple dates, some prunes. That that sounds much better. Yeah. All right. So Iris, what? How do you talk to patients about bowel regimens? Like, give us like what is a what does a first visit with you look like? Probably the patients have tried something. Probably they've tried docusate, and they and it hasn't worked for them. So, what? How do you talk to them about this? So I, I have an epic dot phrase, right? So I'm just gonna like recite to you my epic <laughs> dot phrase. I tell them about their fiber, um, and then I tell them if the fiber is causing too many symptoms to stop the fiber. And then my backbone is an osmotic laxative of some sort. I give them the option of either polyethylene glycol um, or bilk of magnesia. So those two I, I like because there are they're they're more widely available. They're more gentle. They're more well. They're better tolerated. I especially like polyethylene glycol because it's titratable. So patients often say, "Oh, one capful a day," and and some of them will come back and tell me, "Oh, it gave me so much diarrhea. Um, I couldn't take it anymore." And then I just like throw my hands up and I'm like, "I cured you." Now you just need to take less than one capful a day and we know it will work for you. And so what I'll do is I'll actually send them home saying you can titrate this yourself anywhere from half a cap to two capfuls a day. Um, That's usually my upper limit is two capfuls a day. And here's the bowel movement we're aiming for. If it's too much, scale back. If it's too little, scale up. Um. So, so that's my osmotic laxatives. Quick note about the other osmotic laxatives that are on the market or available in textbook form or otherwise. Uh, they include lactulose, um, sorbitol, and mannitol. Sorbitol and mannitol are less frequently used, but lactulose is used frequently and especially in the hospital kind of inpatient setting. Uh, one, like don't do that to your patients. It tastes terrible. Two, it's expensive. And then three, lax- uh, lactulose can actually increase flatulence and gas because it undergoes fermentation in the colon. And so there have been cases that lactulose induces megacolon, especially in patients who have an ileus or a suspected obstruction. Lactulose is not the way to go to try to stimulate their bowels because it will increase the amount of gas that is trapped in their their small bowel. And then your abdominal x-rays will just get bigger and bigger. So don't use lactulose in the inpatient setting. Don't use them in the outpatient setting. Use a different osmotic laxative. Use lactulose in hepatic encephalopathy. And docusate, what do you? What's your spiel on that? Do you take people off it? I know there's people, some people on Twitter trying to get off their hospital's formulary for people who are constipated. 
you know, now the hospital formularies, like, uh, they also, they all formulate them with Senna. So then it's harder to take them off. Um, I, I personally think that, and and this is not guideline driven, right? Because the guidelines don't even include DocuSage. It's just not really strong enough once patients are already constipated. So I, I don't usually recommend it. I think it maybe has a role in the patient who's getting hospitalized, who doesn't have constipation, and you want to prevent constipation because now they're going to be lying in bed. It might be reasonable to give them DocuSate. It might be reasonable to give it to a pregnant lady who is you know, um, trying to prevent constipation outside that preventative um, arena. I don't, I don't use it for treatment. So what's left the stimulant laxatives and then the, the newer agents, the, I guess, I don't know if you call them pro secretory agents, but the secretagogues. The secretagogues. Does that make that sound like so, so much loftier when you call them a secretagogue? Like it does. Demigods. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so my next line on my little epic dot phrase is always a stimulant laxative. And the way I tell my patients to use it, and, and these are either your anthroquinones, so senna, and actually aloe is a stimulant laxative. And then your, um, this word that I cannot say derivative, so I'm just going to tell you about bisacodyl, which is really the only one on the market um, that you can either take by mouth or rectum. So your stimulant laxatives, I usually counsel patients to take them only if they are backed up. So probably at the beginning, they're going to take them every day. But I tell them once they achieve some sort of regularity in their bowel movement to stop that stimulant laxative, because there is some potential for damage to the colonic mucosa. Senna does cause that melanosis coli, which doesn't, you know, doesn't have any negative effects. Um, there's a theoretical risk that they will lose efficacy. Um, but so far, that risk has not really been borne out in literature. So it, it, is it unsafe to use them long term? No, probably not. Um, but I usually have patients hold back because I have seen them lose efficacy here and there anecdotally. Um, so my my out, my little like epic dot phrase uh, table says, use daily until bowel movement goal achieved, then stop. If no bowel movement for, and then I set their date, you know, two to three days, then resume this medication. And then I'll tell them if you are having symptoms from above, so especially if they're ha- they've had a long-standing constipation, then these stimulant laxatives are going to cause colonic contractions. And so if they're having IBSC, if they have pelvic floor dysfunction, um, for any reason, they, they may not tolerate like a, a from above stimulant, then I tell them to go from below. And so bisacodal perectum. So the timing of these, I think I alluded to a little bit earlier. So oral bisacodal takes about six to eight hours to kick in. So we tell patients to take that at night because we know that that pre-defecatory phase really augments in the morning and with your breakfast and with your coffee. And so then if you take a stimulant laxative eight hours before you have all of that, it really kickstarts that mechanism and allows your bowel movements to really like get set, right? Um, if they're doing it per rectum, it takes about 30 minutes. So then you want to do it 30 mm-hmm. minutes before your meal or like right when you wake up or something like that. And Senna is another one that it, it's uh, six, like six to 12 hours for action. So you, I, I, I often dose that like two tablets at night just to, do you have a, do you have a favorite regimen for that? Um, generally I'll have them titrate it to one tablet at night or up to two tablets twice a day. Okay. Um, and they can titrate that at, at their, you know, I, I, I like to empower my patients to control their own bowel mm-hmm. movements. And the, and the fiber supplements and polyethylene glycol, 
those take a little bit longer, like on the hour, like up to a day or so to, to, to really kick in the, the milk of mag. Is that a much, much quicker? That's my sense is that the magnesium ones like mag citrate, mag sulfate are quicker. The magnesium ones actually differ as well. So milk of magnesia is actually a lot gentler than mag citrate. So mm-hmm. you'll expect your mag citrate to work a lot faster and a lot more um, violently than your <laughs> milk of magnesia, which tends, which tends to be a little gentler and more like PEG. Um, so okay. I'll actually have patients continue that all the time. So that's their mm-hmm. backbone. That's their daily med to prevent constipation and keep stool soft. Unless they're telling me they're having diarrhea, then they get to stop. Okay. So going on to our secretagogues, um, you've got a couple of options here. So linaclotide and placanotide, uh, really like all of them work, and I don't think we need to get into the pathophys of these too much, all of them work by chloride receptors. And and I kind of think the, of them in my head as mel- medicated cholera, um, mostly because that's <laughs> like the receptors that cholera works in are these chloride receptors. It's not quite exactly the same mechanism, right? It's controllable. Um but think about how effective cholera is in generating bowel movements, right? So this is what we are imitating with lubiprostone, linaclotide, and placanotide. Lubiprostone is FDA approved for opiate-induced constipation, chronic constipation, and only in women with IBSC. So not in men with IBSC. The linaclotide placanotide family is approved for both genders in chronic constipation and IBSC, contraindicated in children. And then um, placanotide is uh, approved for all of the same indications that linaclotide is. Linaclotide tends to give people very profuse, like diarrhea, like explosive diarrhea. And this is this is anecdotal. This is from my like clinical experience. But I've had a lot of patients say, "Yeah, the linaclotide works, but I need to be home and like ready for it." And often that's a that's a limiting factor. I mentioned that because. Because of this issue, linaclotide came out with a lower dose. So linaclotide has three different dosing regimens, uh, three dosing levels. You can start at the 145. If that doesn't work, reasonable to bump it up to the 290. But there is that 72 option for the patients who are having like explosive diarrhea. Which, (laughs) as you said, you've cured them. You've cured them, so they're they're doing better. That that one is so, a little so you've cured them, but you've cured them with a very expensive medication. Well, let's let's <laughs> say that Miss Miss Constant Strain, she was she was a little bit of a tough case. We tried our milk of mag, we tried polyethylene glycol, it wasn't quite getting her there, so we ended up putting her on lubiprostone. Um, but let's say like I don't know. She was off her diet. She was laying in bed a lot. Just wasn't wasn't moving around much. And she now she feels like she has hard stool and she's like really constipated. W- when is it time to to reach for enemas? Um, probably sooner rather than later, right? So, um, but but that's a little bit. Um, it, it depends a little bit on how bad the 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 firm stool or impaction is. A couple of caveats, right? So the the routine enemas that are available are going to be tap water, saline, soap suds, uh, phosphate enemas or the fleet enemas, and mineral oil enemas. My go-to of those is going to be the tap water enema because it works almost just as well, right? They've done some studies in pediatric populations, and in the ones studied, they really can't find a difference in efficacy. And so really, it's important to know what the side effects of the enemas are. 
um, in order to choose which one you're going to use best because differentially they do very similar things. So your phosphate enemas can be really dangerous if you have some sort of obstruction and you can't evacuate that enema. So then you're going to end up absorbing that phosphate. And especially in your kidney dysfunction patients, that hyperphosphatemia can be very dangerous. And so patients, uh, there have been case reports of patients dying from phosphate enemas. So I yeah they I think they have a black yep. box warning for like arrhythmias nephrocalcinosis like yeah. it's it's it was enough when I when I first right. read about that I just like never exactly used those. like just, just just don't do it there's so many other options <laughs> we've right? got other stuff um yeah. the the tap water enemas again there's are there are go to but there can be problems of water intoxication if you retain them it's just less common and less less dangerous. The soap suds enemas, I actually try to stay away from as well because the soap suds can cause a lot of rectal irritation, um, can damage the rectal mucosa. There's been case reports of necrosis uh, from soap suds. Where are they getting, like, what kind of soap? Are they just like squirting some hand soap in there? <laughs> like, seriously, I have never, I don't even know how to order a soap sud enema. I don't like the nurse, I don't know what the nurses do. If you, I, I usually order tap water or I guess mineral oil is sometimes an option, but yeah, I like the mineral oil enema option quite a bit. I use that when I know there's a stool ball kind of sitting close where my enema can reach because the mineral oil, uh, it acts as an emollient and it really like softens the uh, stool ball. And so what I'll do is I'll alternate um, a tap water and a mineral oil enema and I do not give them lactulose. Now, my favorite enema <laughs> that I have to share with you guys is the milk and molasses enema, which I learned about when I trained down south because this is like a southern grandmother special. And if you order it, <laughs> the it. way it is created is you have to get it from the kitchen and the kitchen like mixes it up and then like sends it up to the floor for you to administer. It's like warm milk with molasses yep. in it. It like smells like gingerbread cookies, kind of. <laughs> Paul, Maybe too much. Comments? <laughs> no, I, I, I actually thought. I mean, that sounds pleasant. Kind of nice. Yeah, delightful. Not the enema yeah. part, but like the, uh, yeah, the molasses <laughs> part. That sounds nice. Sure. So this is the enema. Actually, I could find the most data for. <laughs> And let's be honest, I was like looking for the really? data, okay. <laughs> but there was a retrospective uh, study done in two emergency departments over eight years, okay? And they looked at the efficacy of different enemas, milk and magnesium enemas alone were 88% successful. And there was 82% successful after other treatment failure with only a 3% complication rate and th their minor complications like increased heart rate, decreased blood pressure, increased pain score, um, no severe complications like necrosis, perforation, et cetera. Um, so I, I'm really of the opinion that we need to use more uh, milk and molasses enemas. <laughs> I, that's, uh, I think Speechless. we need, we need more, uh, we need more people to be aware of them. Yeah. I wasn't, I feel like I now that you mention it, I I think I it sounds like something I've heard of before or maybe seen, but I I don't know that they're doing that up Cashlack North, Paul. I've never seen it ordered. Yeah, I think we we well the recipe will be on our show notes, everybody. <laughs> it works really well. There you go. See, Elena knows. <laughs> Big fan. There will be someone who knows about it. I feel uh, like, and yeah. they'll they'll come to your rescue. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let uh, tweet at us, audience. Uh, let's just say, Don't tweet, tweet at us. At us. Uh, Paul okay. Williams' <laughs> enema is the uh, hashtag. 
Great. Let's make one with well, your I, name, Paul. Hashtag, hashtag <laughs> PNW Enema for Paul Nelson Williams Enema. And uh, tell us your favorite enema. I think this could be very high um, yield. I mean, and then I'll print it out and give it to all my GI fellows going forward. It'll be great. Yeah. It'd be nice to be famous for something positive. So I'm, well, I'm okay with it. You know, I, I think... Iris, we we've already talked. We're gonna we're gonna have to have you back to do a uh, gut brain disorders episode, uh, which which uh, people might think of as a functional GI disorders episode. But we're not going to use that terminology. Um, I don't. I think we're almost at the point where we need to to kind of go over your favorite take home points because we've been we've had you here for way longer than we need to. I have one other question. I think you know we talked a lot about pelvic floor dysfunction, and just briefly. I know there's a lot of discussion about biofeedback therapy and like the treatment for pelvic floor dysfunction. Is it similar when you're sending someone to pelvic floor physical therapy? Do most people do biofeedback and treat pelvic floor dysfunction for constipation as well? Or how do, how would that treatment algorithm go? Like who do you send them to? It's a great question. (laughs) Thank you for asking. Uh, It's a little bit different. Um, So It's different from pelvic floor retraining that uh, women will undergo after childbirth, for example. So where they are usually doing more strengthening exercise. Biofeedback therapy for retraining of bowel habits usually involves, one, teaching patients what it feels like using a biofeedback monitor, what it feels like to control their pubal rectalis muscle, and then how to relax that muscle. So I I teach patients that it's similar to... um, our upper diaphragm, right? Like our our diaphragm between our lungs and our abdomen, we can breathe without thinking about it. But if we need to, we can take over that control and take in a deep breath or breathe quickly, right? So the pelvic diaphragm is similar. We don't need to think about it. But if we try hard enough, we can control those muscles and we can learn how to do it. So that's the essence of biofeedback is they're really trying to uh, teach that muscle control. Not all physical therapists do it. It's actually a a really limited resource. And there are certain websites that patients can go to. But in treatment of this disorder, you really do want to find a physical therapist who's trained to do this type of biofeedback and not physical therapy that involves things like um, vaginal massage or abdominal massage. Like those things can help, but that's not the specific therapy. The thing I need to say that I almost forgot is that I recommend all of my patients who have any hint of pelvic floor dysfunction. Some of them can't access physical therapy. Some of them don't have bad enough pelvic floor disorder that I need to commit them to therapy, but they all need a toilet stool. So I make them watch the Squatty Potty commercial. If they're the right patient, I have them do it in clinic uh, with the unicorn so that they know what I'm talking about when I talk about the rectal angles. But basically, I tell them it doesn't need to be any specific type of toilet, but they need some sort of stool in their bathroom that elevates their (laughs) knees above the level of their belly button. And that kind of hip flexion straightens out the rectal angle and naturally relaxes the pubic rectalis muscle. And so that alone can help some patients with just mild um, defecatory disorder. Uh, Elena, I'm so glad you asked that question. I am so glad you asked that question. It, it that was yeah. we definitely had left that hanging out there. You'll probably need to ask around in your local area where you're practicing to find a physical therapist that's going to be able to to help patients with this because it does seem like more of a specialized thing. Um, but I know there are pelvic floor physical therapists. That is something that 
I guess if maybe at least if you're near a big city where I've mostly practiced, I've been able to find people that, that would it can be help helpful if that. I shared the resource I give my patients to find local PT? There's like some websites and some guidance. Yeah, that, we that would be great. Give. That would be fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. So with that, why don't we ask you, Iris, for some take home points? At some point, we want you to let you get home to your family. So uh, please uh, give us your favorite, like you know, two or three take home points that you really want the audience to remember. Um, so I think in, in thinking about constipation, our first take-home point is always rule out secondary constipation. It's treatable causes. There are a lot of etiologies that can contribute to constipation, so that should always be the first step. The second thing to know is therapeutic trial is okay before further testing. That is guideline recommended. It is uh, cost efficient, time efficient, and patients should go through a therapeutic trial up to a secretagogue and that's okay before you do further testing. Um, and then the last thing is really think about pelvic floor dysfunction. It is, again, the root of all constipation. Okay, root of 25% of constipation. Um, but it is a mechanical issue that can't be corrected. And a lot of patients have undiagnosed issues with their pelvic floor. Um, so it is worth putting on everybody's radar and thinking about before you do more drastic testing or other measures. All right. I'm going to let Claire fade that into the outro. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> just, I like Elena's best because there's less and less conviction each time, and I think that's that's the right way to do it. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com, and while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest. Do you get it? Digest it is recapping the latest practice changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. So we really do want your feedback. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Please send your feedback to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And I wanted to give a special thanks to Dr. Elena Gibson for writing and producing this episode and to our executive producer, Beth Garbs Garbatelli, who is also on Twitter. Nora Toronto is the editor of The Digest. Maddie Mad Dog Morgan is on Instagram. Tima Karganov does the website. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. Claire Morgan of Notterly edits our audio. And finally, Chris the Chew Manchu is on Facebook. And so with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. Elena Gibson here. <laughs> Love it. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.